This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could join us today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a new book out called How to Get Sued. Bob? And, of course, I write a blog called Law Sites, another blog called Media Law, and also Legal Blog Watch for Law.com. Uh, and, and, Craig, how's the response going to your book so far? Well, pretty well. Uh, Dean Chemerinsky reviewed it, and he thought it was pretty funny, at least according to his review, and said that uh, he thinks that it should be required reading for uh, people going into the law profession. Absolutely. So what are we talking about today? Well, aspiring law students are definitely going to be having many options in the upcoming years. Um, the National Law Journal has put out a study that says that law schools are on the rise, as many as... Ten proposed law schools are slated to open with a majority set on the East Coast. Uh, but there are some who are saying uh, uh, that uh, these additional law schools are not necessary and that uh, schools are creating them for either to mold students in their own benefit or perhaps to even help uh, enhance their own coffers a bit. Well, aside from the new boom in law schools, uh, accreditation from the American Bar Association has been a big issue. The Maine Supreme Judicial Court turned down a petition from Husan College in Bangor to allow graduates of his proposed law school to take the Maine Bar Exam. The court called the petition unusual, saying that the law school is yet to even open its doors. It ruled on it nevertheless and denied the request because of the proposed school's lack of ABA accreditation and its failure to identify an acceptable alternative to the accreditation. Right. That that Husan, that main college was one of the ones that the NLJ uh, cited in its article last week about this, uh, and uh, it's questionable now whether that school will go forward with its plans to start a law school. But we will talk more about that today with our guests. We will uh, explore the questions of whether there are enough law schools, whether we can use more law schools, uh, what they might have to offer, and even talk a little bit about the ABA accreditation process. Well, our first guest today is a returning guest, is Dean Erwin Chemerinsky, who's a nationally renowned professor of constitutional law and federal civil procedure, who is... Uh, Presently at Duke, but on his way to Southern California to be the founding dean of the Donald Brand School of Law at UC Irvine, effective July 1st, which is probably the newest law school in the country. The Donald Brand School of Law was established by the UC Board of Regents in November 2006, be the first public law school to open in California in more than 40 years. It combines legal education with the advantages of a major research university, and the school plans to leverage UCI's existing strengths in emerging technology, social policy, international business, and healthcare, and produce 21st century leaders in law, government, and business. Scheduled to open its doors for the first class of students in fall of 2009. Welcome back to the show, Dean Chemerinsky. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be with you. And joining us next is Dean Thomas F. Guernsey. Uh, he is president and dean of Albany Law School, where he has been since 2002. That's school's 16th dean. Before joining Albany Law School, he served as dean and professor at Southern Illinois University School of Law, interim vice president for academic affairs and provost at Southern Illinois School of Law. 
and Associate Dean and Professor at University of Richmond. He was also the Honorable Abraham L. Friedman Fellow and Lecturer-in-Law at Temple University School of Law and Instructor of Law at Vermont Law School. His research interests include evidence negotiation, mental health, and special education law. He's the author of three editions of Special Education Law, published by Carolina Academic Press, as well as numerous other books and articles. And uh, he is actually joining us today from San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Dean Guernsey. My pleasure to be here. Well, Dean Chemerinsky, can we start off the show with you giving us a little bit of background about the Donald Brent School of Law at UC Irvine? Sure. I think you did a wonderful description of what it is and what our goal is. And my view is that maybe we don't need another law school just like all the rest. I think there are always difficult measures of how do you determine whether we need another law school. But I think we do need new law schools that are innovative, that try different approaches to training lawyers for the 21st century, that do a different way and different job of having legal scholarship that's relevant to the bar, that's relevant to um, judges, that's relevant to academia. And I think that's what we can do at the University of California Irvine School of Law. I think we can do a better job of training lawyers than any other law school. We're going to really emphasize experiential learning. We want every law student to have a clinical experience while in law school. We want to have a heavy emphasis on skills courses. But we also want to be an interdisciplinary law school. The University of California Irvine is a terrific research university, and I think we can integrate theory and practice. I'll give you just one example. I want to create an intellectual property clinic where we pair a law student, an engineering student, and a business student, and they take an undeveloped patent, and they work together over the course of a year in the way lawyers, business people, engineers actually work together in the real world. I think that can give law students an experience to prepare them for practice that few law students right now get in the country. Dean Guernsey, let's bring you into the conversation. You, uh, The National Law Journal reported that there are three new law schools uh, planned uh, or at least proposed for New York, and, and you were quoted in that article as saying that uh, any more plans for any more law schools, at least in your area, are silly, I think is the word you used. What's your position on whether we need more law schools? I can I, let me say that first I agree with Dean Chemerinsky. I think law schools should be doing the kinds of things that he's going to be doing at his law school. In fact, I think most law schools do those innovative programs to a greater or lesser degree. My position is, speaking from New York, we have 15 law schools in the state of New York. I think that if you look at the demographics in terms of the number of applicants to law schools, the number of applications this year are down. Uh, the number the number of applicants this year is down. If you look at New York, the demographics indicate that certain parts of the state where they want to put these law schools are going to see the demographics change. So the 22-year-olds with bachelor's degrees are down double digits. There's no, just, there's simply no demand among applicants for creating new law schools. Uh, clearly, in New York, there's no demand. Uh, in terms of the job market. It's one of the odd little uh, coincidences in terms of statistics was that last year there were 9,600, I think it was 9,267 people who passed the New York bar. Uh, they also projected last year, the state did, that between now and 2014 there would be 9,200. 60 new jobs in New York. So we're already producing more more lawyers are passing the bar each year than we're projecting jobs availability from now in 2014. And the third factor is law schools are very expensive. This idea that 
law schools are cash cows is simply a myth. Uh, and I don't think, from my perspective, that the state ought to be investing uh, in more law schools in New York at that cost with no demand from either the job market or the applicants. Well, Dean Chemerinsky, you've, uh, the new law school here at UCI has met with almost uh, universal acclaim in California, at least in Southern California, because we have an unusual uh, situation of non-accredited law schools. Well, I can't speak to the New York situation. I don't know anything about it. California is different in the sense that there is no public university law school south of Los Angeles or east of Los Angeles with regard to Cal- Southern California. So that your listeners have a sense of what this means. Orange County, California has 3 million people. If it were a city, and in many ways it functions like a city, it would be the eighth largest city in the country, and it doesn't have a public university law school. There hasn't been a new public university law school created in Southern California in over a half century, and for the entire state of California in over 40 years. So when you're talking about the kind of tremendous population growth there's been, in Southern California and across the state, I think it's a situation that really calls out for there being a new law school and a law school that really is innovative and different from traditional law schools. Well, Dean, it sounds like you're making two separate points, Dean Chemerinsky. That one is the the sort of the, the consumer demand for more law schools, and is there is there a need in that sense? But also, you're talking about the need for for innovation, for new ways of teaching law, and in can't that be addressed uh, simply through existing law schools addressing changes in their curricula? Well, you're right. I am making two points. One is specific to Southern California and why it's appropriate to have a new public university law school there. The other is in terms of innovation. And, of course, I would hope that existing law schools would also rethink how legal education is done. I graduated from law school 30 years ago. Basically, legal education is the same now as when I graduated. In fact, I don't think there have been major changes in legal education since Dean Langdell at Harvard Law School created the case method over 100 years ago. I think it's very difficult within existing institutions to have radical changes. I think that's true probably of any kind of institutions. And having been a law professor for 20 years, I can tell you it's very hard to get significant reforms done in existing law schools. There is a strong inertia, a strong sense of, well, we've never done it that way. I don't want to overstate. Of course, innovations can happen. But I think by having a new law school, we have the opportunity to write on a blank slate, the opportunity to be creative and innovative. And I've said repeatedly, if we simply replicate other top law schools, if we're just like Duke Law School or the University of California Berkeley Law School or the University of Southern California Law School, I taught for 21 years, then we failed. We want to create a top law school that's different, that's innovative. Dean Grunzi, your thoughts on, on that? Can existing law schools be innovative in that way? Oh, I, I couldn't disagree more with uh, Dean Chemerinsky on the idea that legal education is fundamentally no different than it was 30 years ago. The fact is legal education has fundamentally changed at most law schools in the country. Maybe that what you know top ranked law schools according to US News and will report they haven't changed. But when you look at a school like Albany Law School, where virtually every student voluntarily takes a clinical program, or certainly where every student who graduates has to have a skills training experience. When you look at the creation of lawyering programs, when you look at the innovations of bringing in changing the first year curriculum to involve uh, the regulatory state and globalization. I just couldn't disagree more. And I think the law schools in general are po- poised to do even more innovation. In fact, at this point, I'd say the biggest impediment to a real transformation of legal education are bar examiners and the 
continued tie to the to the sort of the the outmoded idea that we're going to test you on 22 subjects, as uh, which then limits innovation, particularly in the second person second year, uh, as opposed to testing you on your ability to work in groups, your ability to write, and other things that uh, we're more than willing to change if we can pull away from this substantive doctrinal end result. What would you change with bar exams? Well, I think one of the problems is that what happens is if you've got a if you've got a bar exam that says we're going to test in some states as many as 22 subjects, uh, your students are going to demand that those 22 subjects are made available on a regular basis and with enough seats uh, that students are able to take them. And the students will take those courses because they're on the bar exam. If you've got 22 subjects after the first year that students have to take or are on the bar exam, and you're basically taking eight courses or four courses a semester, that's only 16 courses that students have to take. They're going to be driven by what's on the bar exam as opposed to be able to say, hey, let's set aside a semester or a Two semesters, half of the semester is going to be a transactional course where we realize that intellectual property is not an independent subject, that in- intellectual property as a, as a law school experience is like it is some practice, is a, a transactional issue or maybe a litigation issue. But we're going to teach a course that's year-long that uses intellectual property, copyright, patents, trademarks, whatever, as one of the vehicles by which the corporation's professors uh, the intellectual property professors, the secure transaction professor, all come in, the practitioners come in and teach that course in a way that truly reflects what happens in practice. Until the bar exam changes, it's going to be very difficult to make those kinds of fundamental changes. Dean Chemerinsky, one of the complaints that I hear from fellow lawyers is that law students come out of law school not really knowing how to practice law, that it takes another two to three years of internships or, you know, kind of like a medical residency to really learn how to practice law. How does UCI plan to address that? I think that's right. Now, of course, I think no matter what we do in law school, people are going to learn a tremendous amount when they're out practicing that they can't gain in law school. But I believe that law schools can do so much better than they've traditionally done in preparing students for the practice of law. And it's not just about elite law schools. I've taught at a whole range of schools. I've taught at DePaul and Loyola of Los Angeles and UCLA and USC and Duke and other places. I've been lecturing to students who are getting ready for the bar exam for over 20 years. And most law schools in the country, most law students graduate never having had a client. Can you imagine if medical schools graduated doctors who had never seen a patient while in medical school? And yet that's what we're doing in law school. And I think that we can do a better job in that way of preparing students for the practice of law by requiring a clinical experience. Let me give you another example. There's a traditional first-year course in legal writing. And I believe that most law students get relatively little out of their legal writing class. Um, my oldest son has now just finished his second year of law school, and I watched what he did at his legal writing class at a very prestigious law school. I don't think it taught him very much about what lawyers actually do. I'd really like to reorient that first-year course into a course in lawyering skills. Again, to mention one example, I want to make sure that all students have a component of it that focuses on fact investigation. Most law students never learn anything about fact investigation while in law school. I'd like to have a mini course in the first year where all students take a couple of week course in something like contract drafting or negotiation. 
And I don't have many first-year students who have that. I don't care whether we put a course in international law in the first year or not. It doesn't matter to me whether they take it in the first year or the second year. I don't think it's curricular reform to change which substantive courses are in the first year. I think what we really need to think is how can we better equip lawyers with the kind of skills they need before they graduate from law school. Isn't that part of the approach that uh, I know that Harvard uh, revised its curriculum last year uh, for first-year students, and, and that's one of the points they emphasized was was – more fact-intensive work, uh, more sort of skills-based work. Um, and I, being in the Boston area, I, I, I think of a, a school here like Northeastern Law School, which for years has, has focused on the sort of practical work uh, and skills-based work uh, interspersed with, you know, the, the more academic and, and more traditional uh, programs. But the, the idea that Harvard got so much press for that curricular change is what really is, in many ways, what I see as part of the problem. There were law schools in this country that made those kinds of changes 15 years ago. Certainly the best practice when it comes to legal writing programs now is the creation of lawyering programs where students see the work of writing briefs and doing research in the context of a client. So there is an introduction to interview and counseling negotiation and even fact uh, investigation. That change has taken place at many, if not a majority of the law schools in this country. It takes a Harvard to do it 15 years after everybody else has moved in and started to move in that direction. I mean, isn't the, the significance, isn't the significance simply that is that they, they, they represent the status quo in a way? I mean, uh, Dean Chemerinsky alluded to, to uh, Dean Langdell and, and uh, the sort of traditional curriculum that came out of Harvard. Uh, I mean, the significance is is that uh, even Harvard is moving off its own uh, its own curriculum. I think true. What about, I mean, is there an obligation, uh, well, maybe not an obligation is the right word, but what about the reports that we're hearing that the job market for young lawyers is is flooded and opportunities are fewer? Uh, do we uh, owe, owe some obligation to future lawyers to make them understand that? And, and are we somehow uh, uh, sidestepping that obligation by moving forward with new law schools? Certainly, I think we should clear that those who are going to law school understand what their opportunities are. I think they should know what their chances are of passing the bar, depending on the school they go to. I believe in full disclosure and information. On the other hand, I don't believe that means that we should close the door to people who want to go to law school if they're qualified to be able to get in and qualified to pass the bar. Nor do I think that's a reason to not create a new law school in a place like Southern California where there's a real need for it. I think what's so interesting about this discussion is I think that we're all agreeing on what law schools should be, I think our disagreement over is what really exists out there in terms of law schools. Well, it's time for us to take a short break. When we return, we'll talk more about law schools and what the future holds for these law schools and their students. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at MayItPleaseTheCourt.com, likewise Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. 
Did you know that Legal Talk Network shows are also available as CLE? Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's CLECenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit for your continuing legal education. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. We're talking about uh, whether the country needs more law schools with two law school deans, Erwin Chemerinsky, a founding dean, uh, in about a week of the Donald Brent School of Law at UC Irvine, and Dean Thomas F. Guernsey of the Albany Law School. I, I just wanted to follow up with, with Dean Guernsey. I, I just wondered if you had any thoughts. We were just talking about the the job market for law school graduates, and I wonder if you had any thoughts on, on the responsibility of law schools with respect to that. Oh, I think the law schools have a, 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 obviously have a responsibility to make sure that the, the uh, student who's coming in understands what the job market is, certainly what their chances of passing the bar exam, you know, what the debt load they're going to incur happens to be. That's part of what my concern is at... Um, as a dean with the creation of up to 10 new law schools, is that the job market, at least in the area in the Northeast, is such that I think we're going to be doing a disservice to having more uh, 22-year-olds with bachelor's degrees or 26-year-olds with bachelor's degrees come in uh, expecting to be able to to, to find a, a robust market when the reality is uh, the job market is going to remain flat. And uh, it is doing a disservice. And they're going into, you know, $100,000 a debt in order to do it. How many law students actually graduate from law school expecting to be lawyers? And, and I mean, there are several, or uh, at least there were in, in my graduating class, maybe 10% or so that intended not to practice law, but simply went for the education. Certainly that's true. But it's also, if we're concerned that there's too many law schools, then maybe we should start talking about which ones that exist should be closed. I don't know why we should say then we're not going to create new ones, that the market is saturated and only those that already exist should be the ones that are there. Um, at UCI, for example, we have commitments already from more than 50 employers, major firms, small firms, public interest offices, government offices, that they'll come and interview our students in the first year that we're open. I'm sure we're going to get many more commitments than that. And given that there is the market for our students, I don't think that this is a concern. And besides that, at most, I think this whole thing about there's not enough jobs there is a reason to educate people before they go to law school as to what their prospects are. I don't think it's an argument against creating more law schools. What about, let me just turn for a second to the uh, ABA accreditation process, it's something that every new law school is probably going to go through at some point, maybe not if they're in California, but in other states. Uh, is that process 
working well uh, to, uh, or is it is it in some way stymieing the development or the innovation of law schools? Uh, and uh, let me start with, well, either of you who want to handle it. I know, Dean Chemerinsky, I know you are pressed for time, and if you do need to leave us before we're wrapped up, uh, feel free to do that. But do you have any thoughts on, on the accreditation? The yeah. answer is that the ABA is trying to play an important role in ensuring quality of law schools. Um, they've got clear standards and rules. Um, there have been a number of new law schools that have received provisional and final accreditation. My understanding is that a law school that's new can apply for provisional accreditation in the spring of its first year. It's visited in the fall of its second year. And if all goes well, it gets provisional accreditation in the spring of its second year. And then it can receive permanent final accreditation, the formal accreditation in its fifth year of operation. The Association of American Law Schools will accredit a school in its fifth year of operation. And um, I think that it's a system that law schools are very aware of and have been dealing with a long time. And so long as the standards are clear and everyone knows what they are, I don't see any problem with it. Well, Dean Chemerinsky, we know you've got to leave, so let's, if we can, get your final thoughts and your contact information at the new law school that you're going to be at coming up. Sure. Um, well, I'm delighted to be on your program, and I'm incredibly excited to be the founding dean of this new law school at the University of California at Irvine. I think we have the opportunity to create a very special law school. Um, we, will ha- we have a website up already, but two weeks from today, June 25th, we're going to put up our new website. It will have all of the contact information, including email addresses, regular addresses, phone numbers, and the like. And we welcome terrific students and administrators and faculty to come be part of creating our dream law school. Well, thank you very much. Dean Gerzi, I hope you have a couple more minutes to stay with us. Uh, we're, we've got a, a couple more minutes left in the program. And I wanted to ask you, uh, one of the points that you made in the uh, uh, National Law Journal article, uh, if I understood it, was that you at least suggested that there are some some universities that look to uh, creating a law school uh, in the belief that a law school is a way to help bring money. A cash cow is is the word that's used in the article to help bring money into the institution. Uh, do I do I understand that right? Yes, and I think what you've got is an urban myth that uh, law schools uh, are cash cows for universities. I think you have to distinguish between uh, do central administrations take money away from law schools in order to pay overhead for that law school versus do they take money away from the law school so that they can spend it on some other part of the university like the history department. The fact is, at virtually all law schools, it costs more to educate a student than the tuition that student is paying. That is clearly most obviously seen in a state institution, where if you take a state school in New York that may be charging $15,000 a year to educate that student, it's probably costing, well, it is costing on average another $18,000 of taxpayer money per student per year to educate that student. If you're talking about a private university, I mean, we're, we're the oldest independent law school in the country, fourth oldest law school, period in the country. I don't have a university that takes away overhead. It still costs the law school about $5,000 more per year than the cost of tuition. So if you go and you want to start a law school, it's going to cost you somewhere in the neighborhood, on average, $50 million to start a law school. It's going to cost you then, if you assume average-sized law school, uh, paying, say, $15,000 a year in tuition, 
you're going to end up having state school, uh, a subsidy from the taxpayers of somewhere in the neighborhood of eighteen to $20,000 per student per year. Now, that's an expensive proposition. Given all that expense, how is it possible then for the, the university to remain competitive with other universities? Because it sounds like your state schools are being subsidized and private schools aren't. Oh, that's that's it precisely. The fact is the state of New York, for example, spends, like I said, about $18,000 per year per law student. If their tuition's about $15,000 a year, uh, my students, on the other hand, are essentially paying $37,400 uh, in tuition, and the other 5000 that cost us to educate them is coming from the endowment, you know, donations uh, from alumni and friends. So it becomes very difficult to compete with a state school. There's no doubt about it. But we, but private education has, you know, significant um, competitive advantages in certain situations. We're in New York. We're in the capital of New York. It's a very attractive place to go to law school. Arguably, I'll, I'll give you Washington, D.C. Besides Washington, D.C., Albany probably is the most significant governmental center in the country in the fact that there's a real working legislature there. The governor actually works there. Every level of the state and federal court system is there, and it provides wonderful opportunities, educational opportunities, for our students to get uh, exposure to the entire range of what lawyers do. So private schools tend to have to focus on what is their competitive advantage other than price. How are students handling the $100,000 debt load that it takes to go to law school, especially given that not every every student comes out with the $160,000 job for the top tier of the top law schools? There's no doubt that that's the biggest issue, I think, that confronts legal education today, that if you're graduating with $100,000 of debt and you have an average job, that pays, say, $65,000 a year, your monthly payment on that debt is going to take close to 40% of your take-home pay. Uh, It's it's highly risky. What you do see today, I think, a change from when I went to law school 30 years ago, you see more law students working today during law school because they need to, as opposed to they want the experience, uh, and so it's you, you, you see that even in a in a residential school like ours, that there are times when the students just aren't around because they've got to be downtown working to make some money in order to minimize that debt load. And then, of course, it affects the jobs they take upon graduation. They're much more likely to want to go to a a large firm that's going to pay a lot of money in order to pay down that download. Which becomes a vicious cycle because students don't then want to go into public service. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. That what happens is it becomes very, for, for, the, for the student who has a choice between going to a, a Vault 100 firm in New York City or going to work in the public interest or work for the state of New York, uh, the pressure is to take the firm in New York City because of the best salary differential and to pay down those loans. I think ultimately that has a negative impact not on 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 the general economy. Certainly, our school, you know, we play sort of a unique role in many ways as a private institution. We play the role that a lot of state schools play within their states. Since, since we are in Albany, um, we have about nine thousand living alums. Over a thousand of them work for the state of New York. Uh, you know, ranging from being 
the attorney general of the state down to uh, working in uh, different agency offices or judges or clerks for judges or whatever. And what happens is that it's, it, if, if the tuition, if that debt load remains high, even the state is going to have a hard time attracting the best and the brightest kids as they go to firms that are going to pay more money. Well, we've reached the end of our program where it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts about our discussion and get your contact information so any of our listeners can reach you. So, if you would, please. Oh, I think I think Dean Chemerinsky is right in the sense you've got to look at these in terms of regional, but I do think people need to understand that the demand for more law schools is not there from the standpoint of applicants. The demand for more law graduates is not there from the job market, and it's a very costly proposition. And if anybody would like to get a hold of me, my uh, my email address is t-g-u-e-r at albanylaw.edu. Wonderful. And I appreciate talking to you. Well, thank you very much. Well, Bob, that about does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. Uh, remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at thelegaltalknetwork.com. And a very special thanks to uh, both of our guests for being with us today. And a reminder to our listeners that they can also find our program on iTunes. We'll be back next week with another great legal topic. And uh, look forward to talking to you then, Craig. And thanks a lot, Dean Jonesy. Can't wait, Bob. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.